Welcome to the Venture Fizz Podcast. I'm Keith Klein, the host of our show. In this podcast, we interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This includes lots of discussions with founders, investors, and operating executives. For today's show, I interviewed Julie Yu. She is the co-founder and chief product officer at Kairos, which has 120 employees and has raised over $60 million in funding from Highland Capital, Venrock, McKesson, and others. Kairos is a healthcare tech company that is ultimately solving some critical issues when it comes to not only getting the right doctor or specialist, but helping to improve the access to these experts so you can get treated sooner. In this podcast, Julie and I cover lots of topics, like the early days of her career at Endeka, how the book and movie Moneyball was an inspiration behind Kairos, her passion for product management, advice for women raising venture capital, and lots, lots more. Okay, before we dive into the interview, people ask me this question all the time. Keith, what companies are buzzing in the Boston tech scene? Here's what I tell them. Go to our biz pages. From there, you can take a virtual tour of over 200 of Boston's fastest growing companies across all industries and all stages of financing. And yes, all these companies are hiring. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Julie. I like to just dive right in. So if you could share with us uh, your background and even going way back, I like to hear, you know, where'd you grow up and what'd your parents do for work and then bring us forward from there. Of course. So I was, uh, let's see, I'll start from the way beginning. I'm, I'm the, the child of two immigrants who uh, came to the U.S. for their graduate studies, and they happened to land in the modest, modest city of Providence, Rhode Island. So I was actually oh, wow. born on the Brown University campus while my parents were studying there, and uh, therefore spent you know, uh, quite a bit of my early days in, in the New England area. My parents still tell me about their trips up to Boston. They hung out on Downtown Crossing back in the 70s, um, and of course, everything's changed significantly since then. But so started out my life in the U.S. and um, actually ended up uh, moving back to Seoul, Korea, which is where my parents are from originally when I was young and essentially graduating from an international school there uh, in high school um, and then ending up back in, in Boston for college. So my professional career, I, I grew up here in the Boston tech ecosystem, I like to say, uh, went to MIT as an undergrad, um, initially intending to be a doctor and uh, came in as a pre-med uh, biology major but was in school during um, what I like to call the original dot-com boom back in the late 90s and was just surrounded by obviously the great opportunities, the technology, um, the, the opportunity to, to be a software engineer at MIT and um, ended up you know, finishing my pre-med requirements. And so I, can, I always have that in my back pocket uh, if I want to go back to it later. But, um, and then ultimately ended up being a computer science major as well. And I uh, just fell in love with software engineering. Um, I had actually taught myself how to code in high school, uh, just, you know, sort of basic web stuff, um, but carried that through into my undergrad studies and uh, ended up uh, graduating with that degree. And during the course of that time, um, obviously being in Kendall Square was exposed to just the tremendous amount of entrepreneurship that was happening in the Boston area at that time and, and still obviously continues today. So uh, totally gravitated toward the startup scene never even thought for a second about going to a large company or, you know, any kind of established corporation, um, you know, but uh, rather ended up working both internships as well as side jobs during school with a number of local startup companies, uh, one of which happened 
to be this company, which at the time was called OptiGrab, and now people know it as Indeca. And well, so, so you were involved at that point in time in that early, early stage when it was called OptiGrab. I was actually an intern um, after my junior year. So the person who recruited me in was a person named Andrew Lau, which uh, folks may know from the community. Um, he, he also went to MIT. We lived in the same dorm. And, you know, one day he came along and said, hey, Julie, you need a summer job? And I said, sure. And, you know, went to visit the office, which was in the basement of um, one of the buildings in Kendall Square. Um, we always joked that there was like toxic waste pipes, you know, sort of embedded in the ceiling of the office where we originally were, were uh, hanging out and uh, ended up joining on as an intern um, and just, again, fell in love with it uh, and joined on full time after I graduated. And I think I learned about this from Scott Kersner at one point. So it was called Optigrab, which was a reference to a Steve Martin movie, right? The jerk Correct, where the he jerk. invented. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. So you were involved with Indeca, which obviously has an amazing roster of alumni. Uh, Steve Papa did an amazing job building a great anchor company in Boston that led to an acquisition by Oracle. But so many people from that company have gone off to do amazing things, yourself included. So what did you do at Indeca initially? So I was a software engineer um, right out of college. So joined up with the original team um, building the platform. It was actually right after they did their first pivot, uh, technically. And um, it was when they identified the, the market opportunity that ultimately made them what they were. Um, and so I got the chance to actually work on the really the first version of their core platform um, and many of their early customers. I, I fondly remember working on TowerRecords.com, which you know no longer exists as a business, right. but at the time was a major, major deal for us. And uh, so I spent a few years um, on the software side and then ultimately um, was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to play a number of different roles at Indeca during my six-year tenure there, um, but really started out on the tech side. And in Deco, it was basically um, it was a search engine for e-commerce sites, right? If you were typing in on Tower Records, uh, you know, trying to find Nirvana, right, back in the day, uh, it would obviously hopefully bring up those results first, and then they went on to power other major sites like maybe Walmart or something, right? That's right. Yeah, their their fundamental innovation was something that they called guided navigation, and it was this notion of being able to predictively um, display to a user what the possible paths for navigating around a catalog would be, mm -hmm. um, and that actually had a, a very profound uh, impact on on me uh, in terms of what we've brought here to Kairos, which we'll get to later on in this in this talk. But um, this notion of using technology to marry structured and unstructured information uh, in such a way that end users who have no knowledge of the full long tail of, of what might be in that catalog could discover, um, you know, sort of serendipitously. Um, what they might want to purchase um, was a, a very um, meaningful learning opportunity for me. It's interesting how that technology is so groundbreaking, but what we take for granted today. Exactly, exactly. So after Indeca, you went back to school and you got a dual degree, your MBA and a master's in biomedical enterprise at a joint program between MIT and Harvard? That's right. Yeah. I, in fact, um, you know, having been a pre-med as an undergrad, you know, obviously Indeca was not a healthcare company, um, although I always retained a sort of a personal love for just the intersection of, of healthcare and technology. And perhaps one of the most formative experiences that I had at Indeca was helping them explore the healthcare vertical as one of the potential growth opportunities beyond e-commerce. Um, so this was at a time when Indeca had significant traction in the e-commerce uh, market and was looking at certain other verticals to um, expand their market opportunity. And healthcare was was obviously one of the markets that we looked at, given their big 
um, focus on data. Um, you know, this was the time when when the the federal government was pouring dollars into digitization of electronic medical records, and so we started to look at some opportunities in that space. Um, and DECA didn't have in house any of the domain expertise or, or uh, industry expertise that would enable us to ultimately be successful in that space. But um, I was part of a small team that got exposure to that opportunity and just got enamored by a how behind the healthcare industry was as far as technology adoption goes, and then also the huge opportunity for uh, technologies like Indecas to uh, make a potentially um, you know significant impact. And so that was um, a big influencer uh, of me thinking about actually making a career change into healthcare by way of grad school. And um, that was what ultimately uh, kind of um, led me to to pull the trigger and and go back to this graduate program. And after graduate, after you graduated, you ended up in product management in the tech industry. So one of the things that, um, you know, in my background, I actually work with a lot of product managers, but um, the uh, the degree product management doesn't exist. So how does how did you end up in product management? Yeah, it's really interesting. So, you know, at, the, at NDECA, I mentioned I started in, in software engineering, but I ultimately ended up playing a number of different roles, um, whether it be, it be on the, the sales side. So we actually was a sales engineer um, sort of tasked with uh, solutioning with um, prospects to, you know, identify what use cases our technology could be applied to that would then help them scale their businesses, um, as well as on the professional services side, helping customers implement our technology um, to achieve their business goals. And um, again, I think in retrospect, that was probably a, a big shaper for me thinking about or just recognizing that I had a passion for this notion of um, finding out what users were trying to accomplish and leveraging technology to help them do their jobs better. Um, and so with that, I actually took uh, you know some of the, the time that I had in grad school to explore product management um, formally and uh, worked with a company called Gnome, actually another one based in, in Kendall Square, um, as a product manager to help them get their product off the ground, but also for myself, uh, figure out whether product management would be um, a good fit for me from a career perspective. And I ended up, you know, both being able to leverage the technical background combined with some of the market facing experiences that I had, as well as, you know, figuring out that I, I loved the, this, this concept of product management. Um, and product management is also an interesting space, which I'm sure you've seen Keith evolve quite a bit, you know, over the last several decades and certainly even in the last few years, as far as what does it mean? You know, when I started Kairos, I was pretty much, you know, I would say one of a handful of chief product officers I knew at the time in the Boston area. And, you know, now it's a pretty prevalent um, you know, title and, and something that, you know, many companies I think have come to embrace. But um, I've been fortunate to sort of be uh, part of, of the product management space at a time when it seems to be evolving quite rapidly. Yeah, it's evolved a ton, which we'll definitely get into that some more in a bit. Yeah. Uh, so from there, you ended up in New York, right, at Generation Health that ended up getting acquired by CVS Health? That's right. Yeah. So Generation Health was my first job out of college, of, sorry, of, of grad school. And um, it was a, a very funny story that, you know, ultimately I ended up meeting uh, Graham Gardner, who was the found one of the founders of Generation Health um, in one of my graduate school classes that I was the TA of. And uh, it turns out Graham actually uh, went off to become a venture capitalist at Highland Capital Partners. And, you know, my master's work was actually focused on the area of genetics and genomics. Um, so I was doing my master's thesis on uh, this area related to molecular diagnostics and, you know, looking at what factors would um, ultimately influence the adoption of genetic tests in the clinical setting. And it just, it turned out, um, again, totally serendipitously that 
the company that Graham was seeding at Highland was essentially commercializing my master's thesis. And wow. you know, when we both came to learn that there was quite a significant overlap in the market opportunity that the company was going after and what my graduate work was on, I was actually hired in as their first employee um, after they, they closed their Series A. So um, that was a, a fabulous ride. Uh, we were working with some of the luminaries in, in the industry. Um, the CEO of the company was named Pera Lofberg, who had grown uh, Medco, uh, which was, you know, I think at the time, an $80 billion business that ultimately got sold to Merck. And he was essentially retired, but, you know, came out of retirement because he was so excited about this particular business opportunity. So he was the founding CEO of the company, and I had a fabulous chance to, to learn from him. And then obviously the best thing that came out of it, in addition to the exit, was that I had a chance to work with Graham, who ultimately became my co-founder here at Kairos. So that must have been a rocket ship if that was, it was that quick of an acquisition by CVS Health. So what was so why was that so fast? It was a very strategic bet that CVS made on the particular area of the market that we were working in. So um, CVS uh, Caremark, so the, the pharmacy benefit management um, portion of their business, their number one competitor at the time was actually Medco, which was the previous company that Pear, our CEO, had run. And they were in this just steel cage deathmatch against each other to um, you know, fight for business. And it turns out that Medco had actually homegrown a solution that was helping them win in the market that happened to be directly competitive with the new co that we were forming. And CVS therefore, you know, saw us, you know, they knew pair, they, um, you know, figured that um, this would be one of the ways that they could compete against um, Medco would be to partner with us and, you know, bring our solutions to market as part of their offering. And so they actually made a strategic investment in the company fairly early on just to kind of um, place their bet. And then as we started working with CVS, very, very quickly, they realized that, you know, A, we as a small company needed their leverage, their operational, you know, wherewithal and just their book of business to be able to bring to market our solutions in a very significant way. And that, you know, B, um, that they would be better off having the company as part of their core operations versus just as a partner. And so, you know, really within a year, they, um, you know, moved from being a strategic investor to just acquiring us straight up. And that happened all within, I think, a less than two-year period of time. So it was a very, you know, quick ride, very fortunate outcome for everyone involved. We were pre pre-product when we when we got acquired. So you know, the thesis was that we would essentially build and launch the product in you know within the walls of, of CVS. So um, it was you know fascinating for me to also be a part of that initial strategic visioning of what generation. And health that'll ultimately be. And then all of a sudden, you know, have um, the resources and organization like CVS at our disposal to be able to actually execute on that vision. So um, I stayed on for a few months post acquisition to actually help them get that off the ground. And, uh, and then Graham and I both came out and decided that we wanted to do our next thing together. And what led, that was actually a good segue to my next question. What led you and Graham down the path of starting a company together? And what was that aha moment? We had, first of all, both just uh, enjoyed working with each other. We have very complementary skill sets. So, you know, me coming from kind of the technical side, I was basically the head of product at Generation Health and was responsible for their uh, software-based um, solutions. And Graham is a clinician by training and um, had the experience of being a physician uh, in the, the Boston area and experiencing, you know, what it was like to be a specialist who had to manage patients, who had to manage referrals. And um, it just so turned out that he was quite passionate about 
this notion of patient provider matching um, based on his experience as a cardiologist where he would you know get patients sent to him who would wait weeks if not months to get an appointment with him and they would show up and you know Graham was obviously a very specialized cardiologist having been trained here in the Harvard system and he you know was was disappointed by the fact that oftentimes those patients ended up not being the right kind of patient for him, you know, not or, or requiring some kind of service that he was not trained to provide, um, and therefore needing to be re-referred and wait, waiting yet another eight weeks or you know several months to actually get the care that they needed. And not only was that an inconvenience for the patients, it was obviously also um, disheartening for him as a clinician to not be able to help those patients and ultimately potentially have a negative impact on their clinical outcomes. And, you know, when I heard about that problem, you know, I said, gosh, you know, that seems like a, a problem where you could take um, a technology based approach to, you know, number one, helping people who were making referrals understand who the physicians were that provided various services and therefore be able to search intelligently about what those referral options were. So you may hear some similarities here from the Indeca um, sort of world in terms of how I thought about search and you know leveraging discovery-based um, technology solutions to, to address that need. Um, and then it was also at, at a time when Obama had just been elected into office and he was, um, you know, Obamacare essentially came into light and health systems were being forced to essentially change their business model from one of fee-for-service where they were being paid for every surgery and every visit that they were encountering to one in which they would have to be accountable for the outcomes of the patients and more of the value-based care model. And, um, it, you know, the actual probably aha moment was when uh, we both read and saw the movie Moneyball. Um, and uh, realized that, you know, what baseball had ultimately done, this notion of moving from a world of anecdotal assessment of players where, you know, scouts would kind of go and eyeball a player, see how they ran, see how they, they hit the ball and say, gosh, that guy looks like a great slugger. Let's recruit him in to one in which, you know, analytics and, and statistics ultimately reigned in terms of how people were assessing not only individual players, but how they would assemble teams. And we said, gosh, if if they were able to do it, um, you know, what if we took that same approach to provider networks in a way that helped health systems understand who their players were, so to speak? So um, taking this more data driven approach to understanding their physicians and helping referring doctors move from a world in which they just refer to the people that they went to medical school with um, anecdotal referrals to one in which they actually had at their disposal data that said, here are the doctors who have done this procedure, who have ex expertise that matches what the patient needs, who accepts the insurance of the, of the patient, et cetera. And so that was ultimately the initial vision behind what, what we are today at Kairos. That's a cool story. I never knew that analogy of Moneyball. Yeah. We actually give that book out to every new employee who joins the team. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so let's get into the, the heart of what Kairos does. So you're the you know co-founder of Kairos. What does your company do? Yeah, so we are um, literally in the patient access space, helping patients get to the right provider in a way that um, solves what we call the patient access paradox. So, you know, you as a patient are probably told to wait weeks for doctor's appointments, especially here in the Boston area, where wait times can be pretty significant. 
And, you know, we all assume that that's because every slot in the system is booked out solid, that there's really no capacity in the system. But one of the best kept secrets in healthcare is that that's absolutely not the case, that there turns out to be quite a bit of underutilized capacity in the in the system and, um, and that there's an opportunity to really solve that supply demand mismatch and, you know, both reduce appointment wait times for the patients, as well as help large health systems better utilize their available provider capacity. So we provide a technology and enterprise software platform that uh, helps help systems do that um, in, in really two major ways. One is that we help create a master database of all their providers. Um, and as simple as that sounds, it's quite astounding to me that even today, we encounter new prospects and new provider organizations who come to us and say, we don't know who our providers are. We literally don't know you know, who they are, what they do, where they practice, and whether or not they have availability for certain types of appointments. And um, that is a massive problem across, you know, pretty much every major health system in the country that uh, one aspect of our technology system is, is designed to solve. And by doing that, we then enable end users, whether it be us as consumers, as patients, or even referring providers, so people who are within the system and um, you know don't know who's within their network and who has the uh, capabilities of doing what, um, to be able to search for the right providers and then ultimately book appointments uh, in an efficient way. Um, and again, anyone who has tried to book an appointment, um, whether it be you know, through self-service mechanisms or even through phone-based mechanisms, has probably experienced quite a bit of inefficiency, whether it be you know, not being able to book an appointment when you first call and having to be warm transferred a number of times, um, or simply not being able to book and having to go in person and do those kind of things. So um, there's a huge uh, unmet need around essentially making it as easy to book a doctor's appointment as it is to book a very complex multi-leg flight via an app like Kayak. Um, so we certainly take a lot of inspiration from the travel industry as we think about designing our solutions as well. It, so it's fascinating to hear that there's all these open slots for these highly sought after doctors. Like, so, cause you do hear these specialists like, oh, they're booking out months in advance. So good luck getting an appointment. Yet that's not always the case. Yeah. So I would say, you know, rather than, so there certainly are appointments that go empty and that could be, you know, due to lack of visibility into calendars when the appointment is first being booked. So one of the, the basic problems that we're solving is that, you know, every large health network is typically run by multiple scheduling systems on the back end. And if you only have access to scheduling system A, then, you know, you might see everything booked out solid, even though the doctors who are on scheduling systems B or C actually do have availability. So, a very basic problem of just getting um, integrated, you know, visibility into those scheduling systems. So that's typically one of the contributing factors to open slots. But even when slots are booked out, what we find is that um, number one, roughly about a fourth of specialist referrals might end up getting sent to the wrong doctor the first time, like the experience that I described Graham having um, when he was a cardiologist, which means that those slots are basically wasted, that you know you might be taking 30 minutes of a doctor's day to send them a patient that they could not do anything about. Um, and so that's one thing that we look at. And then another reason why there's inefficiency around capacity utilization is that you might you know, get sent to a specialist. So let's say I have a headache. Um, a headache patient doesn't necessarily have to go directly to a neurologist right off the bat. They might be better off seeing a more general uh, specialist or even a primary care doctor um, so that that neurologist could, you know, that that person's time could be saved for the more complex and, you know, sophisticated cases that truly need that specialized care. 
So those are some of the additional factors that contribute to that mismatch. But it's, you know, it's interesting. It's a surprise to most people who I, who I tell outside of the healthcare industry, because it's something that was really, really difficult to measure historically. And now that more and more of the information is being digitized, we can actually analyze it and, you know, find all these pockets of opportunity. So it's something that the market, I think, um, has woken up to fairly recently and uh, obviously was, was timed nicely with, um, with our company coming online in that area. So much more efficient. Yeah. Now going to the referral piece, yeah, I, historically, like you said, doctors would refer classmates from med school or just people that they knew that were in a certain area of medicine. But obviously that's not always the right specialist. Right. So, so how do you get all the data about the doctors, both their history of what they've done, and then how do you keep that ongoing as far as what they're doing you know, each and every day? Yeah, great question. So, you know, this is what our technology is designed to do is, first of all, automate the process of bringing data together from various silos that already exist out there. So oftentimes it's a case that you might have one system that contains the practice location of the doctor, but yet another system that contains which insurances they accept, and yet another system that contains their schedule. And you know, we've actually observed you know, call center um, agents, for instance, who are tasked with scheduling appointments, literally having to flip back and forth between 10 different screens to get their job done. And that's one of the big reasons why we're put on hold for 20 minutes or that it takes X number of calls to actually get an appointment booked. So, you know, very basic. We First thing we do is actually bring that data together into a single platform, uh, which is our Kairos One uh, database, um, and create unification across those data sources. Um, secondly, we also then automate the process by which we reconcile those data sources. So one example that I always like to give is, you know, you might have Jay Smith and J.R. Smith and John Smith represented, you know, 10 different ways across 20 different databases. And how do I know that this Jay Smith is the John Smith, who is a cardiologist versus the Jeremy Smith, who is a gastroenterologist? Um, and so one of the aspects of, you know, how we apply machine learning in our system is to inform that match and make sure that we're accurately attributing different data points to the right provider. Um, and that's something that obviously is very, very difficult to do by hand. And so we, we use our, our technology to um, help our customers accomplish that. And then the third piece is, you know, we do have this philosophy of human in the loop, meaning that, you know, 99% of what we do can be certainly automated through technology. But at the end of the day, we actually engage providers directly in the validation process, almost like a LinkedIn type paradigm where we pre-populate their profile and say, you know, here are the 20 procedures that we believe you do based on your training and what insurances we believe you accept within your practice, please, you know, swipe right essentially in a mobile app if this is right or correct it if it's wrong. And we find, you know, very significant response rates and engagement rates from providers who gen genuinely want to make sure that their information is accurately re represented so that they're getting high quality referrals into their practice and that patients aren't being sent in the wrong direction. So we do combine uh, technology with human engagement, um, recognizing that not everything can be validated, um, you know, through automation. And also the benefit of having the physicians involved um, is almost a marketing tool for us to show them, hey, there's a system out there that we're going to be using to help drive referrals into your practice. Um, it's in your interest to make sure that the data that we're representing about you is correct. Got it. Okay. Uh, so Kyra, since you're, you've founded the company with Graham, you've raised over 60 million in venture capital funding. Can you talk about the fundraising process? Uh, you know, Graham had experience, right? Raising capital. He had just closed the A round before you joined or right around that time. So, and he was a venture capitalist with Highland, right? Um, but can you talk about the fundraising process from your perspective of going out and, you know, doing, you know, 
whether you did the seed or the straight to series A through the current state of where you're at today. Yeah, absolutely. Graham is, you know, I always answer when people ask me, how did I go about raising funding? So I w- I'm just so grateful for having had Graham's expertise and experience um, on the other side of the table, um, which, you know, Highland was the seed investor at Kairos. And so uh, given that we were coming off of such a significant win with Generation Health, it was very easy for us to convince them that, hey, um, you should back us again. Mm-hmm. So um, so that was a very fortunate experience. We also, I, I, our first office was actually the first floor of Highland's old office in uh, in. Lexington. So we benefited from getting their space and obviously just, just the ecosystem of, of other companies that they uh, had access to. Um, so it's been a long process. I would say in particular, uh, healthcare IT or digital health, as I, you know, a lot of people call it these days, um, is an industry that requires a, an appreciation for the time horizon necessary to, uh, you know, to make to make big, big companies come to life. Um, it is very different, you know, even though Indeca was what a you know, 10 plus year ride, um, you know, this space, uh, just from a overall technology maturity perspective is fairly nascent. And, you know, uh, we certainly started Kairos with a very long view that, you know, this could be a 20 year ride that, you know, just getting um, our health system customers to adopt cloud-based technologies in the early days we were teaching people what cloud meant and actually writing like their um their security vendor questionnaires over again because they were all originally designed for on-prem solutions and they never had dealt with with cloud-based solutions so just all these dynamics made it such that we needed to we knew that we needed to raise enough capital to make it through a significant you know pre-product market fit um, time horizon. And so we very deliberately with eyes wide open, you know, kind of went into um, all, each of our, our financings with that mindset. Um, uh, you know, I think there's a, a handful of investors who, um, you know, kind of focus on our space. And so we were very deliberate in partnering with uh, investor organizations and firms that um, did understand our industry. You know, we didn't raise from just, you know, pure tech investors per se. Um, and, you know, we were very focused on people who understood our industry, our space, the dynamics of, you know, the um, the go-to-market aspects of things. Um, so that was another aspect of how we kind of honed in on the on the investor set that we ultimately partnered with. But um, I would say uh, the, the final thing I would say on this front was in addition to um, you know, targeting some of really the the best um, you know investors in, in the digital health space. We've also been very fortunate to receive investment from some of our customers. Um, so we actually received st- strategic investment from Providence St. Joseph's Health, uh, based out in Seattle, um, as well as Mercy Health in Cincinnati, which has just been a great aligning function for us um, to have a sort of live fire sandbox environments with customers who have skin in the game um, to help us get adopted and, and help us scale. And so that's been another um, interesting element to our fundraising strategy is, you know, not just focusing on the more traditional venture capital route, but also partnering with some of our more strategic customers um, who would ultimately help us get on the map. When you're in an enterprise business like Kairos is in a industry that, as you highlighted, isn't quick to adopt new technologies, how do you raise subsequent rounds of venture funding? Um, you know, do you kind of set some milestones that, you know, if we hit these, we'll know we'll be able to get our B round, you know, because you hear about the Series A funding crunch or, you know, getting the B round is even harder. Like, how do you go about, you know, hitting those milestones when you're in this enterprise level sale versus like a consumer <laughs> app that's very obvious to show the inflection point and let's throw more money on the fire? 
Yeah, you have to be super, super disciplined. And we did set very specific uh, milestones for ourselves, starting from even the seed investment. We said, you know, we're not going to take down a Series A unless we hit, you know, these three milestones. And all of the milestones tended to be customer adoption oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, so could we prove that we had a product that, you know, was um, was was uh, hitting a, a very significant need for these these customers and that they were willing to pay a significant amount of money for it. I think, you know, we always focused very heavily on the financial impact, uh, financial aspects of our business model. Um, you know, we didn't want to be just a $25,000 per year kind of, you know, small um, purchase. Um, we are, you know, a seven-figure investment from some of our larger customers. And so we we've, um, were very disciplined early on to make sure that we were not you know, we had, that we had kind of price integrity, that we're being very disciplined about that. Um, the other big thing for us, and, and w- when you hear our, some of our investors speak about this, you know, credit goes to them for almost forcing this upon us uh, from a discipline perspective. Uh, we were very focused on proving that our product could have a 10x ROI within the first year of implementation. And so one of the big milestones between our Series B and Series C was being able to demonstrate repeatable ROI of that nature with at least three customers. Um, so you know that level of focus was what we ultimately needed to achieve those milestones, get alignment with the investors as well, and get them bought into why we were going to take more time to invest, um, you know, in in the platform and you know building up our engineering team ahead of revenue, things of that sort. So we were very fortunate to have investors who really understood that and supported us throughout the that that journey. That's great feedback. I think it's good for entrepreneurs to hear that. That you know you hear all these stories on TechCrunch of companies that are just like, you know, raising capital and at these hefty valuations yet haven't really built a true business yet, right? Where that's not exactly. the norm. It's very rare. So it's good for founders to hear that, you know, you got to actually slog and build a real business with a real solution that customers will actually pay money for. That's right. Where's your business today? Like how many employees do you have and where do you see Kairos going in the future? Yeah, so we are coming off of a great year of uh, momentum. So um, from an employee count perspective, we're at about 120 total and largely based here in the Boston area. But we're now um, you know, fortunate to have a nationwide client footprint. So we do have uh, satellite offices in about five different cities across the U.S., and we are in a, a, a growth um, stage, um, which, you know, it's it's just great and, and super exciting. And I'm so proud of, of where we've come over the last seven, seven years. So it's really taken, um, you know, quite a bit of time to get to where we are. But, you know, now we can look back and say, number one, we've officially achieved product market fit, um, you know, as of, I would say, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, number two, we literally have a marquee list of customers when, when it comes to the health system space. And that just has in and of itself its own flywheel effect. And so from a sales, um, you know, just trajectory and uh, derivative perspective, the last year, uh, 2017, was our um, biggest year to date. We more than doubled our business and we plan to do so again this year. And, um, you know, to that end, it's just been, um, you know, we, we now have a repeatable business model that we're just sort of pouring investment into, whether it be on the certainly, you know, continue on the product development side, but more so on the commercial go to market side. So much of our growth in the last uh, couple of years has been in sales, marketing, implementation services. Um, so that's really been an exciting dimension to the business over the last couple of years. Outside of Kairos, you're an active member of the Boston tech community. You are a board member at a startup called Wellist. You're on the board of trustees at the Mass Technology Leadership Council. So running your own startup, how do you actually find time for these other activities? And if someone was interested in getting a board seat somewhere, how does someone actually do that? Yeah, it was actually something that, um, you know, again, I, I 
did not have time, frankly, to do that up until very recently when we started to scale our team and I became less of the single point of failure, which was a good thing for Kairos. But um, at that point, probably a couple years ago, I got excited about, I think, two things. One was just giving back. And it sounds so, you know, contrived and trite and everyone always says this, but it's, it's you know, people like Steve Papa, um, who have mentored me along the way, it's just it meant so much. And, you know, to be able to give back in that same way is something that I absolutely wanted to do as soon as possible. So um, things like my um, my role with, with Wellist was something that I went into with just a pure, you know, genuine desire to give back to other entrepreneurs who were looking to repeat what, what Kairos had been able to do. Um, the math TLC involvement was, you know, born of the fact that when you're an entrepreneur, you're just so hyper-focused on your own world, your own domain, you know, your company and, and everything around it. And there's millions of things that just, you know, kind of um, force you to, to kind of be very insular about, you know, how, what you're focused on and how you spend your time. Um, what I became very cognizant of was just, um, you know, how much the ecosystem, uh, certainly, you know, Boston, let alone Massachusetts uh, in general, has contributed to our company's ability to be successful. And, you know, in particular, whether it be, you know, issues as, um, you know, sort of uh, tactical as, you know, how we treat um, non-compete uh, agreements or um, even the immigration challenges that, you know, our company and others have had um, with keeping, uh, you know, highly talented individuals in our country, um, I just realized that there was a sort of macro dimension to the tech ecosystem that, A, I just wanted to get educated about and B, find ways for not just myself, but for Kairos to um, contribute to. So um, those were two of my motivating factors to uh, get more involved in Mass TLC. And, you know, I, I hope to get more and more involved in, in some of the broader organizations that have a similar bent to them. Um, but I've really benefited from learning more about those macro issues and kind of bringing it back to how that could both apply to Kairos as, as well as how Kairos can help um, other companies benefit from that ecosystem. What about um, female founders that are out there building a company, trying to raise capital? What, what advice can you give to them? Yeah, it's been such an interesting uh, dialogue and debate um, in this area. And, you know, I, I always... Uh, like to say that you know I've I've whether it be that I'm I'm fortunate or I just you know don't see it or um, you know I, I think probably more the former I've you know myself um, I have never felt like I've been discriminated because of my gender and um, you know I think if anything uh, the folks that I work with and and just the Boston ecosystem I think has been very progressive um, in this area and I know lots of female founders and and folks who've been very successful in various ways. Um, you know, oftentimes the advice that I give to folks, and especially as I observe, uh, you know, some of the, the female founders around me is, you know, just to, to not go in with any assumption that you will get discriminated because of your gender. Um, I think oftentimes people sort of handicap themselves just mentally by expecting that they will be, you know, looked down upon or just, you know, not be um, on the same level or on the same, um, you know, uh, a foundational ground as, as others just simply due to their gender. And, you know, if you're a founder, presumably you've had a number of other dimensions to your professional career, just your character that give you the merit um, to do what you're doing. And, you know, I just always encourage people to focus on those and, you know, not make gender a variable in, in how you see yourself as well as how others assess you. Yep, that's great feedback. Are there any other companies in the Boston area that you admire or think highly of? Oh, there's so many. Um, I have a, a group of um, fellow chief product officers that I hang out with every now and then. And, you know, all the companies that they're involved in are, are just, you know, phenomenal 
Boston stories, um, you know, whether it be companies like Log Me In, uh, Acquia, um, obviously, you know, Endeka has spawned a number of companies. Salsify is another that I keep tabs on. Um, my old boss, Jason Purcell, is the is the founder of that company, and um, I often look to them for, you know, we're sort of at similar stages of growth, um, and so I get a lot of advice from folks there. Um, I would say certainly in our space, um, Athena Health is the one company that comes to mind as, um, you know, just having done something fundamental, fundamentally phenomenal um, and, and, you know, just creating a whole category of solution that didn't exist prior to them being there. And that's really what we've aspired to here at Kairos. So um, we always look to Athena as, um, you know, one of our, our idols in the healthcare IT space. I didn't know there was a group of chief product officers that got together. Is that just kind of like an informal basis just to talk about product management or trends? Yeah, it's kind of a, a pseudo support group where we get to all commiserate <laughs> with each other about what we're all dealing with in our respective roles. But also, yeah, it's um, we, sh we share a lot of insights and best practices. Um, we do a combination of sort of informal, you know, drinks and dinners with sometimes actually inviting speakers, um, you know, in to help us, uh, you know, get novel insights into, into various practices or, or aspects of the industry. Um, it, it sort of formed organically, um, you know, just due to the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that there were only kind of a handful of chief product officers out there and we all kind of gravitated towards each other. But it's really blossomed into a great um, networking and support group for me. Yeah, the product management um just the whole industry as a, as a whole has come so far as far as how product management has evolved. And, uh, you know, always thought Boston was kind of behind the curve, but I think it's caught up a lot as far as how, uh, you know, there, there is a lot more thought around product management and a lot more people to get, uh, you know, Absolutely. mentorship from and learn from each other. So I think it's come a long way. Absolutely. I think one of the unique aspects of the Boston product management scene is the enterprise focus. And I genuinely believe that there is a different approach that you need to take to enterprise um, you know, tech versus consumer tech uh, when it comes to, to PMs. So I think that's an area where um, we have the opportunity to really be thought leaders. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Julie, thanks so much for taking the time. I always like to you know, pass the mic back to you just to kind of close things out. Is there anything that you'd like to promote? Well, thank you, Keith, for having me. Um, thank you to the entire VentureFizz community. I'm a big fan of the community and, um, you know, Kairos has certainly benefited from whether it be the events or just other services that you have to offer. Um, and to that end, one of the reasons that we've always partnered with VentureFizz is to tout all of the open roles that we have here. So we are certainly hiring across all aspects of our company, um, given that we are in this growth mode. So um, would encourage folks to check out our website, check out our listings on, on VentureFizz and um, give us a, a shout if, if you're looking for uh, a great opportunity to disrupt healthcare and, and help um, change the way that patients get matched to the right provider. Yeah, it's great. Got a great mission statement behind it. Uh, so definitely follow Julie's advice. Check out their biz page for all their job openings on VentureFizz. Well, Julie, thanks again for sharing all your words of wisdom here. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.